Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, hit that like button on this video and any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. So let's dive on into today's topic. We are discussing scuttlebutt on overlooked companies. So the idea for this podcast comes from a great investor, David Flood, who I respect highly for his writing on investing in obscure overlooked companies. His blog is elementaryvalue.com and I encourage you to check it out. So I put out a call for questions on Twitter. If you're not following me on Twitter, you should. That's at Trey Henniger, T-R-E-Y-H-E-N-N-I-N-G-E-R. And so if you follow me on Twitter, every once in a while, I'll put out a call for questions, put out a call for ideas for podcasts, and your ideas may become a future show. So in addition to, you know, following the, the show itself and subscribing, I recommend um, following me on Twitter because you might end up on the show that way. So the question he asked of, of what I should discuss is scuttlebutt on obscure companies. And so that's what we're going to break down today. And he wants to know, what do I look for when I come across an obscure company? And including stuff like the capital stack, filings, business model, asset base, earnings power, etc. So that's what we're going to dive in today. Um, I think this is a really good question because it gets to some of the fundamental analysis that you need to do as an investor. But today we're going to focus specifically on obscure stocks, but I'm going to kind of reframe this as overlooked companies um, because everyone has their own definition of obscure, overlooked, but I really think overlooked is the term I identify with. And so these are companies that are never going to be brought up and talked about um, at a coffee shop or with just anyone in public or just you're not going to see them often discussed in the news on CNBC. They're not going to be well known. Um, almost nobody will have heard of them if you tell someone that you own shares in the company and they're really going to be outside of the limelight. They're going to be overlooked. So these types of companies tend to have certain characteristics. Um, they're going to be relatively low number of shares, relatively small in terms of market cap. Um, 
They're not always marketing themselves as potential investments. Um, you might have, they might lack an, um, an investor relations department. And so this is one of the areas I specialize in is overlooked companies. And David does as well, which is part of why I think he's asking this question. But I think it's good because what's important about this topic of scuttlebutt on overlooked companies is I believe it's the area where if you're going to perform scuttlebutt, if you're going to perform fundamental investment research, your greatest opportunity for outperformance and for getting an edge is if you focus on overlooked companies. Because if you do scuttlebutt, if you do in-depth research on a company that's not overlooked, on a mainstream company, on something that everyone knows, something like Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Walmart, Costco, Chipotle, something in the mainstream that people are aware of, that people know about, there's a limit to the advantages you can build for yourself. You're not going to be able to get an informational advantage. You're not going to be able to get um, uh, an analytical advantage. Um, there are advantages you might be able to have. You might have a longer time horizon um, and various things along those lines. You might have you know, just the normal incentive advantages that an individual has versus a professional. And so you can think longer term, you can, you don't have to worry about inv what investors are going to think, that sort of thing. But you're always going to be limited on the advantages you can get. And so when you're doing scuttlebutt, you want to focus on companies like overlooked companies. And so this question really gets to the heart of that of, okay, you're focusing on overlooked companies because this is an area you might be able to get an advantage in. And so what do you look for? What are the important things? And so I firmly believe that everyone's style is going to be a little bit different. You have to find your own unique style. And so what I'm going to talk about today is not what is the best thing to do, not what the optimal thing is to do, um, not what the right thing is to do. I'm not going to tell you what's right and wrong. What I'm going to tell you about is my strategy, what I do, how I think about these things. And you need to figure out for yourself what works for you because it's taken me time to figure out that this is the sort of thing that look, works for me. You know, we're talking about this question from David and of course he's been on the podcast, um, interviewed him and, and another good investor that I enjoy reading is Dan Shum from nonamestocks.com and both of them and all three of us kind of specialize in overlooked companies, but all three of us have our own styles. They're all a little bit different. We all look for different things. And so you can learn something from people you don't, you disagree with and from people who have different styles than you. And so again, I'm focused on what my style is. These answers that I provide aren't the right answers. They're my answers. So I think that framing is important. I hope you stuck with me. If you're still here, let's dive in. The first topic is capital stack. So what this means is what types of securities does the company have? Um, do they have equity, um, you know, common stock, preferred stock, debt, options, um, restricted stock, all sorts of stuff like that. And so for me, the capital stack, I'm saying the cleaner is the better. The ideal situation that I want to have when I find an obscure company is that they have one share class of common stock and nothing else. 
So they don't have two share classes. If you think like Google has uh, class A and class B shares, they might actually have class C shares too. Um, but multiple shares of stock, you know, most multiple classes of stock. I don't like that. Um, you think even Berkshire Hathaway has multiple classes of stock, both an A and a B shares. So I don't want multiple classes of stock uh, that can um, upset the dynamics between management and shareholders. And so I'd like there to be clean alignment there. So cleaner is better. One share class of stock. Um, I don't want there to be preferred stock. The exception would be like a bank. If there's an overlooked bank, um, they're kind of a unique scenario where preferred stock can make a lot of sense and you're going to often see banks with preferred stock. And so I wouldn't eliminate an idea. Uh, I wouldn't eliminate a bank because it has preferred stock like I might with another type of company. And again, these are just simple things I look for. They're not like a clean elimination on their own, um, but it's just levels. Um, options. Don't eliminate a company on their own because a lot of management is pretty considered pretty normal for management to receive stock options as part of their compensation package. I don't like it. Um, so ideally, there are no options. There are no stock options on the capital stack. But if there are, we need to investigate, you know, what's the history on theirs. Have the, has management issued themselves options in the past? Were the prices reasonable? Um, was the communication about why they were receiving the options and how much and what the incentive structure around it was well communicated to shareholders? I've seen multiple cases where options are issued to management and they don't tell anyone about it until two years later. And so then you have all sorts of questions like, well, were they options issued retroactively? Were they actually issued when they said? Were they actually issued at the prices said? Did they change the terms later? And so you just don't want to see any of that. Um, and then you also need to think of like, is were the is the amount of options reasonable? You know, like what percentage of the company do they represent? You know, a management team that's getting options on 5, 10, 15, 20% of the company is a lot more ridiculous than options that represent less than 1% of the company. So it's trying to putting into framing of is the management team based upon how the capital stack is set up, are they aligned with common stock shareholders? And the best way to do that is when you see that there's only common stock, there's no other type of stock, and the capital stack is relatively clean. Now, also on the capital stack, you're going to see debt. Um, and so you can have stuff like convertible debt, which is really bad. I don't like to see convertible debt. Convertible debt's one of these things that's really interesting. Um, if you're an investor and you can buy convertible bonds that convert into equity, um, especially in like some sort of like private raise, um, debt raise, they can be very attractive for the investor buying them. The problem is, is that if you buy a stock with convertible equity, it might be attractive for you if you own the convertible debt. But when you do that, you have to hope that they never issue more convertible debt. And the problem is, is that companies' historical decision makings really well inform what they're going to do in the future. So if a company's issued convertible debt in the past, they're likely to still do it further in the future. And so when I see something like convertible debt, that's a red flag for me. Um, and it's not what I want to see in the capital stack because it means there's going to be future dilution, um, sometimes unpredictable amounts of dilution. 
and is just a, a concern in how the company could be set up. Um, so moving beyond convertible debt, you might just have straight debt. And again, there's a whole range of things of how these could be bad. You know, you, is this a bank loan? Is it bonds? Are those bond? Do, does the loan or the bonds have certain covenants about liquidity, or do they restrict how many buybacks can be made or dividends? Um, what are the covenants and restrictions? And this can be quite complicated. Sometimes in an overlooked company, you have no idea. It might just say debt, and you don't know what that is. And so then you have to be very careful. Um, in bigger companies, you might be able to read the debt terms. And so that can sometimes be helpful. Sometimes small companies that communicate really well will issue those and, and, and let you know, you know. For instance, you know, a company that I've been invested in, they, you know, bought a building and then you can go and read the actual mortgage terms between them and the bank. And so you can understand what are the restrictions? What are the covenants? Um, what am I agreeing to as a shareholder? And so that can be very helpful but again, you're gonna see varying amounts of communication here. In terms of debt though, one thing really sticks out to me that, that to me is a red flag. Again, not something I would necessarily eliminate a company for, but that I'd be really concerned about is if there's signs of potential self-dealing. Are insiders lending money to themselves, to the company? Is the company lending money to insiders? So like, does the, does the company owe the CEO money? Or does the CEO owe the company money? Um, or does the CFO owe the company money? Or does the company owe the CFO money? Stuff like that is very concerning. Now, there's plausible, non-fraudulent reasons why those things can occur. Often small or overlooked companies can't get bank loans. It's really hard for them to. Maybe they don't have good enough assets or the interest rates are too high. And so the easiest way for the company to get a loan is to get it from like the, the CEO or some other person in management. But there's a lot of problems that can be potentially caused by that. Now you have multiple incentives in place. I know of one company that I heard about where Everything sounded great about it, but the company owed, uh, I think it's the CEO, a significant chunk of money, enough money that they could basically force them into bankruptcy. And so it was a really weird situation because then the company needed to refinance and then they were trying to make acquisition, you know, get acquired and different things. And you have this overhang of owing the person a lot of money. And so then they ended up doing a right thing about it and allow, you know, coming to an agreement to rejigger it and, and not take, you know, 50% of the equity in doing so. I think they took something like 10 or 20% when they could have maybe gotten the whole company for free just because to pay off that debt. But it's a concern because as an equity investor, you want to minimize the presence of anything that could wipe you out. Anything that could cause a zero is a massive concern as an investor. So you need to be very clear about what risks you're taking. So the other piece here with the capital stack, and you're often going to see this in like the filings, is stuff like overdue or delayed payment to insiders. Again, this would be a red flag. Um especially some of the companies I've seen, whether it might be that David has written up himself or Dan Shum has written up, is you'll read these things and these might be really small companies. So we're talking a million dollars or less or less than $5 million companies. It's not uncommon if the companies have lost money for a few years 
that they have past due payments owed to their management team. So basically, the management's earnings, you know, maybe is earning $150,000 a year as CEO. And the company, because they've been losing money for a few years, can't afford to pay the CEO. And so the CEO will say, um, will defer their payment. And so then you have this basic liability that that shows up on the balance sheet as like deferred payments to see, to management or CEO or insiders where they owe the management team money and they haven't been able to pay it. What this effectively means is the company's in default. Um, they might have more liabilities than equity um, and they're basically at the risk of going bankrupt at any point. And this is a really big concern um, because as an equity investor, one of the key rights that you're buying as an equity investor is you buy the right to vote at shareholder meetings. But you could be highly hampered in your ability to mount a proxy fight because management can always force the company into bankruptcy if they don't like how the proxy's going because they could say, oh, well, you're in default and maybe I defer that default because I continue racking up liability while I'm trying to turn the company around because I'm running it. But if someone else comes in to try and run it, then I say, well, you owe me half a million dollars and I'm going to just take over the whole company and force it into bankruptcy. So there's all sorts of potential problems when you have these things come up. And and they're so bad because you try and talk to someone about it and they're like, oh, you know, like it almost sounds like a conspiracy theory when you get to like what people can actually do, like what their legal rights are. And so you have to be very careful that you know the worst case scenarios and often they're worse than you think they are. Um, so that's the capital stack. And I spent a lot of time on that because it's really important. It's something that differentiates. Um, oh, there's one more piece of the capital stack. So not only do I want there only to be a single class of common stock, I want to see multiple years of financials where the common stock amount hasn't changed. So I want it to say there were 2 million shares this year, 2 million shares last year, 2 million shares the year before, and for 3, 5, 10 years, there's been no change in the share count at all. Now, I'd be perfectly happy if the share count's going down. Um, So down is better than up. um, And down is better than no change at all. But no change at all in the share count is extremely attractive in an overlooked company. It means that there's a lack of financial engineering going on. It means that there's... It almost confirms the company is overlooked. It means that there's not a lot of issuance of shares occurring. They're not issuing shares to management. They're not issuing shares to employees. They're not issuing options. And so if you see, um, even if there's just one year where you see that the number of shares outstanding is the exact same as the year before, like from December 31st one year to December 31st the year the next year, it's a great sign of what the potential is there in that potential company because it means that if you get growth, you're not going to lose it to share issuance. And so that's one of the things I really like to see. Um, and I remember seeing it in a few companies I bought over the last couple of years. And it was as soon as you see it, it's so different because normally when you get to the um, income statement and you go down to the share count, it'll say, 
you know, we had X amount of shares outstanding at the end of 2021, and we had X minus 500,000 outstanding at the year eight, you know, at the end of 2020. And it's just like, okay, so then they issued 500,000 shares with last year. The amount of times where it just says we had X amount at the end of 2021 and X amount at 2020, it's abnormal. And that's really what you're looking for is, and you're more likely to see with an overlooked company is something that's not normal. Normal is fine, but abnormal can be really, really good. It could also be really, really bad, but I'm looking for stuff that's abnormal. And one of the things you might see in a capital stack is abnormal is that the shares haven't changed. Secondly, I want there to be as low as shares as possible. So um, I remember I invested in company that had somewhere in the range of 200,000 shares outstanding and total versus there's companies in the S&P 500 with over a billion shares outstanding. And so the smaller the number, the better. It's really cool to buy stock in companies where they have 100,000, 200,000 shares outstanding or a million or 2 million shares outstanding because it shows that there's a limited number of people able to buy the stock. And if you combine that with lack of options, lack of dilution, then if the prospects of the company improve, you could see a massive increase in the share price because the only way to buy those shares is to buy them from other people. You're not getting new shares created. It's kind of like Bitcoin. There's only ever 21 million. Well, if you have a certain number of shares and it's never changing, that can be a really good sign for something that I'm going to get interested in. So we, we t- covered cap stacks. So now filings. I've changed on this over time. I used to be really interested in dark stocks, but I've actually had a much lower interest in dark stocks recently after the SEC ruling because what the SEC ruling did is it made it very hard to buy and sell dark stocks if companies chose not to report to the SEC or through OGC markets their filings. Uh, and and post their financials. And so you've had this kind of dichotomy where companies can self-select out of um, market exposure. And I don't like it. I don't like that this was done, but because it has been done, management has now had the opportunity to decide, are we going to report our financials publicly so that our shareholders have the opportunity to buy and sell their stock, or are we gonna choose not to and basically punish our shareholders um, and prevent them from having liquidity. And so it wasn't a red flag for me to be dark prior to this ruling, but it's become a red flag for me for it to be dark since that ruling. Now, you don't need to go and get listed. You don't need to do all sorts of stuff. You don't even need to find, you just need to comply to the minimum amount so that you can be pink limited Um, on OTC markets and there's different levels and current pink limited, which isn't worth going into now, but basically I want to see the company post their financials. They don't need to be audited. Um, Auditing can be expensive and the smaller you are, then that's very difficult to handle sometimes. And so it can make sense for companies not to have audited financials. I understand why that might occur, but you don't need audited financials to comply with the SEC requirement. You just need to be regularly posting your financials in a public manner that's accessible to shareholders and that allows your stock to be traded. And so to me, I want them to be at least current or pink limited or some indication from management that they will soon be. 
again, there's times where that doesn't occur and there's certain stocks that I'm interested in today that aren't current on their financials, but that I expect to be current in the next year or two. That's acceptable. There are reasons that can occur and there's reason that's that shouldn't prevent me from buying if I'm happy with the reasons and the answers that I'm given. But if you're dark and you plan to stay dark forever, that's no longer something I'm interested in, even in these overlooked companies. And you'll be so surprised. You can find companies that are worth only a million dollars total, and they're still complying with these requirements, and they're still able to be bought. And so to me, that's kind of like the minimum threshold of what I'm interested in. Kind of the plus, the bonus points are if you have some sort of management commentary. This would be nice. So it says, to me, it's where you might have a financial and the filing might be five pages. Um, you know, you have like one page for each financial statement or, and then you might have, you know, a single page or two page long um, letter from management. And to me, that's all I need to know. You don't need to have more than 10 pages in your filing for me to be happy with the disclosure amount. Um, but I would like to see that commentary by management saying, this is what's happening with our business over the last year. This is how we expect to go forward. These are the reasons we're making certain decisions and just some sort of management commentary, at least a page, but ideally more of a management letter to shareholders. That's what I want to see at least once a year, ideally every quarter, but at least once a year, you get some sort of commentary and discussion from management. If you, if the management refuses to discuss, talk with shareholders, either in their financials or when reached out to directly, I think that's a red flag. And again, some of this is used to be different, but with the way that the current regulations are, it's now a minimum requirement for me that I can talk to management or that management talks to me through their letters. So the next one is business model. I'm very open, especially in overlooked companies, to all manner of business models. Now, I'm a quality investor. I like to invest in high quality companies. But what I'm doing is I want to buy high quality companies that will be recognized as high quality companies five to 10 years from now. They don't need to be recognized as high quality companies today. And so what that means is that when I buy the stock, it might be that the company is considered low quality or average today. And so that means that I have to be open to a wider range of business models. Therefore, what I'm looking for in an overlooked company is something changing. I'm looking for change. And that could be new products, that could be new management, that could be a new board of directors, that can be growths of some kind. Some sort of change is occurring that to me can indicate that the future might be better than the past. And that's the best type of change. And even though change sometimes makes things worse, change at least offers the opportunity for something to be different. And so I really like it when um, I can get on board where an, there's an activist campaign and, and you get new management in place because they're going to make different decisions than the previous management and they're going to fix something. And it doesn't take much fixing in order for a really beaten down overlooked company to have a massive revaluation higher. Um, so business model, pretty simple. I'm looking for change. I want there to be something changing in the business. Um, if I buy a stock that doesn't require change, 
it's usually because it's already obviously high quality and yet still is cheap for some reason. So again, not every company has device change. Some of my favorite companies aren't changing. But if I read a write-up by someone, um, that's one of the things I'm going to look for, especially if it's optically bad to start. So like if you already have a great business model, that could get me on board. But I'm just generally assuming that those that already have a business model are not going to be as overlooked. That is an assumption, but just something to be aware of. Asset base, what I want to look for in an asset base is I ideally want assets to cover the market cap. I want some sort of margin of safety. Um, this is pretty common. The one that I see a lot is you might have some sort of asset that's not producing earnings, but it could be sold off in order to protect an investor's downside. Like, for instance, if there's a $5 million company that has a million dollars in cash and $4 million in real estate, and then they also have a business, then I kind of have like $5 million in assets covering the market cap. Now, and I might not be very profitable. It might be losing money today, something along those lines. But as long as there's an asset base that I think could be sold to at least cover the market cap, that provides me some downside protection that I'm looking for. Um, and those numbers are pretty relevant. You know, 1 million, 4 million, 5 million. Um, that's kind of the range we're talking about here in assets. So, I mean, smaller is better is what I'm typically looking for. Um, and so something as simple as real estate could provide that um, margin of safety I'm looking for. Earnings power. I like to buy profitable companies. Not everyone makes this a requirement, but for me, it's a requirement. Ideally, every year for the last 10 years, the company will have made a profit. Doesn't have to be a big one, can be a small one, can fluctuate, but ideally every year for 10 years, they made a profit. At worst, I don't want them to lose money in more than one year in the last 10 years. Now, what are some exceptions? If a company has operating income, positive operating income for every 10 years, but there's been something like one-time changes that have caused negative net income, but they still have positive free cash flow and positive operating income, that's okay. Um, and those can often be some of the best situations because it might look unprofitable today, but in two years, it's going to look profitable and everything's going to be okay. Um, so I want to see profitable companies. I don't want to see high growth companies that are losing money. I don't want to see low growth companies that are losing money. I don't want to see um, shrinking companies that sometimes lose money, sometimes make a profit. I don't want to see cyclical companies. Um, I want stable, profitable earnings power because as long as a company is making a profit, they have a chance to make positive changes. They have a chance for their profits to get much, much better. Now, they also have a chance for things to go wrong. But if you've earned a profit for 10 years in a row, you're pretty well set up to keep going. And so my downside is protected. Um, upside could be uncertain, but my downside is protected. And usually between the asset base and trying to be covered covering my market cap with assets and the earnings power being profitable, I eliminate like 99% of the overlooked companies I look at. Those two things alone eliminate almost everything I look at. But the ones that survive that can be very, very attractive. Um, and there's usually something that's going on that's keeping them overlooked. Maybe they're just too small. Um, something along those lines. But I can work with stuff like that. Um, the ones that I really struggle with 
and that are a lot more common is maybe they have the assets, but they don't have earnings and they're unprofitable. Or maybe they're profitable, but they don't have any assets that can protect my downside. Or maybe they're profitable, they have assets, and um, the management is not um, providing the filings that I need to see. Um, It's really hard to get all of these things that I want. Um, And so, but they're they're like a checklist. You need to check off as many of the things you can, and I really try hard recently not to compromise. Now, the reason I don't compromise on these is because I run a concentrated portfolio. If you're only going to own five stocks, then you need the stocks you own to be the best companies you know, the best ones with the best growth and the best earnings and the best assets and the best management. You don't want to buy second tier companies. Now, if you run a diversified portfolio, you can make more compromises. Maybe you can trade off some risk on the management side because you have good assets and earnings, or maybe you can trade off risk on the earnings because you have good assets and management. If you have, you know, two out of three of these types of things and you're running a diversified portfolio, I think that can make a lot of sense. Um, But for me, again, I want everything to check out. And so when I'm doing my scuttlebutt, it's really process of elimination. Uh, I want to find any reason I can not to invest in this company. And so I'm just looking for reasons not to invest. And if something survives that exhaustive search, then I get really excited. Um, If I can't find a reason not to invest, that's when I get really excited. But I'm trying really hard to kill my ideas. I want them to die, and I want them to die as quickly as possible. So putting in these red lines like a clean cap stack, or you have to be filing and reporting your financials, I think it protects me from losses and it protects my time to be optimized on finding better and better ideas. If there's one thing I've learned as I've improved as an investor is that just because a company's overlooked doesn't mean it's worth buying. I need to continue to have a quality filter. I need to continue to search for good top tier ideas. And so I search overlooked companies not because they're likely to have the best companies. I would say if you want a high hit rate of high quality companies, then you look in the S&P 500. You're going to have a much higher hit rate with high quality companies in the S&P 500. However, you're also going to pay much higher prices. So what I look for in overlooked companies is it's almost assumed I'm going to get a fairly good price because people aren't looking at it. It's, it's likely to be overlooked. It's likely to have a relatively low PE ratio, assuming it's profitable. Um, and so I'm likely to get a good price, which means all of my effort, my scuttlebutt, is trying to filter out quality. Versus in the S&P 500, you're likely to get a good quality company, and now you need to spend all your time filtering on price. And so that's kind of the big difference between scuttlebutt in overlooked companies versus scuttlebutt in popular companies. If a company's popular, it's probably popular for a reason. Um, it's not some grand revelation that Apple's a good company or that Disney's a good company or that Costco's a good company. It doesn't take a genius to see that when you study the company. What it does take is patience to get a good price for those companies, to wait until 
something appears wrong and you're able to get an attractive price. Overlooked investing is just the opposite of that. It's really easy to get a good price in overlooked companies, but it's very hard to get a good quality. And so I want both. And so I don't restrict myself to size or quality or anything like that. But I do think that as a quality investor investing in overlooked companies, the focus of my scuttlebutt is filtering on quality. And so that's what I'm looking for in all these different areas. Thank you, David, for the question. I think it was a really good topic to cover, and I hope this show has been helpful to you and others. If you've listened with me this far, please like this video, like this podcast, leave me a five-star rating review if you're listening on the podcast format. If you're listening on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button and click the bell so you can get notifications for future episodes. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.